Mention the name Edgar Rice Burroughs to many people, and they'll immediately recognise him as the creator of Tarzan, that popular pulp hero of novels and film who endured throughout the 20th century as one of the world's most popular fictional characters. Less well known than Tarzan, however, is John Carter. This Virginian Civil War veteran travelled to the planet Mars in a string of pulp adventures, all of them written by Burroughs. In Carter's first adventure, The Princess of Mars, which was serialised in 1912 and then published as a complete novel in 1917, Carter goes prospecting for gold in Arizona. While exploring a cave, he is inexplicably transported through space to the planet Mars, known by its numerous inhabitants as Barsoom. Carter finds that in the lower gravity of Mars, he has superhuman strength and the ability to leap great distances. He rapidly becomes involved in the political affairs of the planet's warring tribes, including the red-skinned humanoid Martians and the tall, four-armed Tharks. Burroughs wrote nine more Barsoom novels in total, beginning with The Gods of Mars in 1918 and ending in Lana of Gathol in 1948. While the Tarzan books were adapted to cinema as early as 1918, in Tarzan of the Apes and the Romance of Tarzan, John Carter's road to the cinema took almost exactly 100 years, three movie studios, six directors, and countless writers, artists, and designers along the way. Well, in 1935, the animation director Bob Clampett wrote to Edgar Rice Burroughs, inquiring after the film rights to the Barsoom novels. He explained, An animator can take a pencil and put the city of Rome on a stra- or a strange planet on a small piece of paper and have a character do anything that comes to his imagination. There is no other medium that allows you to exert such control over every frame of film. Well, Clampett visited Burroughs at the author's Californian estate and was surprised to find him extremely receptive to the idea of an animated John Carter. Clampett said, Edgar was smart enough to understand that one couldn't just literally translate his Mars books page by page into animation. It just wouldn't be cinematic. So he gave me a great deal of freedom to dream up and be inspired by his writing and develop a cartoon story of my own. Clampett and Burroughs' son John Coleman Burroughs started animation tests on a proposed animated serial, which would have been the first of its kind. Clampett's test footage raised the interest of um, film studio MGM. Since Clampett was at the time working for Warner Brothers, this Barsoom test sequence was animated in the evenings, with John and his wife assisting from time to time. To achieve a more mature and realistic style of animation, Clampett abandoned traditional inks in favour of oil painting. He said, We would oil paint the side showing frame by frame in an attempt to get away from the typical outlining that took place in normal animated films. In the running sequence, for example, there is a subtle blending of figure and line which eliminated the harsh outline. It is more like a human being in tone. We were working in untested territory at the time. There was no animated film to look at to see how it was done. A six-minute test sequence was completed in 1936 and presented to MGM. Negative feedback from film exhibitors led the studio to back out, however, leaving Clampett's vision as the first of numerous unrealised Barsoom movies. While MGM offered Clampett the chance to use his new animation techniques to create a Tarzan serial, which is what the exhibitors really wanted, the director elected to simply renew his contract with Warner Brothers. In recent years, Clampett's test reel was rediscovered, and it's allowed fans of both animation and Burroughs' writing to assess the footage for themselves. Placed in historical context, the footage is breathtaking. The rotoscope sword fighting is significantly ahead of anything else being animated at the time, while Clampett's experimental use of oil paints on the colour sequences gives each scene an oddly three-dimensional, rich aesthetic. It has gone down as one of Hollywood's greatest missed opportunities. Had it gone ahead, it would likely have created a significantly different future for American animation. In 1958, the special effects designer and model maker Ray Harryhausen vainly attempted to stimulate interest in making a Barsoom movie, but the next proper attempt to film A Princess of Mars came almost 30 years later, and 50 years since Clampett's attempt was abandoned. In 1986, the Walt Disney Company teamed with Corolco Pictures to purchase the rights and develop a big-budget live-action movie. 
The film was something of a pet project for Disney's head of feature film production, Jeffrey Katzenberg, and he was an enthused advocate for the project. Karolko's Mario Casar and Andrew Vanya were in the middle of a decade-long winning streak, releasing more than 20 films in a row to gross more than $100 million, including the lucrative Rambo franchise. The first, writer to assigned, the first writer assigned to adapt the novel to the screen was Charles Pogue, who had recently scripted The Fly for the director David Cronenberg. One reason this project appeals to me, he said, is that it's not high-tech space opera. I refer to it as an interplanetary swashbuckler adventure. He has his own code of honour, so while he's going through the whole Martian experience, he's behaving as only a gentleman would, but he keeps tripping up. Pogue was keen to stick as close as possible to the book, including retaining the book's 19th century setting. This didn't sit well with Disney and Karolko, whose executives envisaged a more contemporary take on the material. So in 1988, one year after Pogue had completed his screenplay, Disney hired Terry Black to undertake a rewrite. Black had come to Disney's attention writing a zombie movie called Dead Heat, and he was a keen fan of Burroughs' novels. The studio wanted to change the whole story around, he said. At one point, they wanted me to throw out the whole book, which I thought was foolish advice. This tension between faithfully adapting the then 75-year-old property and producing a contemporary, audience-friendly action film was one that remained throughout Disney's development of A Princess of Mars. After the studio remained unsatisfied with the project, despite Black's rewrite, Jeffrey Katzenberg hired two more writers, Ted Elliott and Terry Rossio. While the duo would subsequently write a string of hit films for Disney, including Aladdin and Pirates of the Caribbean, A Princess of Mars was their very first work for the company. Elliot and Rossio's scripts, titled The Chronicles of John Carter, Edgar Rice Burroughs and a Princess of Mars, was completed in March 1990. Their screenplay used Burroughs himself as a framing narrative, inheriting his uncle John Carter's estate and learning of his adventures on Mars. Early in 1990, the artist William Stout was approached about the possibility of working on a Princess of Mars, although in precisely which capacity was never really made clear to him. The, pro- the two producers were a man and a woman, he later recalled. After talking to them for five minutes, I could tell that these two clueless individuals had never produced anything in their lives. Plus, they were idiots. They began by asking me if I was familiar with the Burroughs books. Yeah, I said. I've read all the Martian books about three times apiece. I'm currently rereading them all to my kids. They said, you know those creatures that Burroughs describes in the books? I said, yeah, yeah, the, the, the Tharks, the Thoats, the Zidatars. I'm very familiar with these animals and characters. And they said, yeah, we want to see something different. At that point I thought, oh my god, right off the bat they're already tampering with what may be the very thing that has kept these books alive for over a hundred years. Stout was not hired in that instance, but he was later signed on as a production artist once Disney hired director John McTiernan, with whom Stout had worked with on Predator in 1987. McTiernan's three previous films, Predator, Die Hard and The Hunt for October, had established him as one of Hollywood's most talented directors of action and adventure. Arnold Schwarzenegger was briefly considered for the role of John Carter, but the muscular Austrian was a fairly poor fit to play the 19th century Virginian. McTiernan wasn't completely happy with the Elliot and Rossio draft, so he hired Bob Gale, the creator of Back to the Future, to insert more humour into the script. And he also considered shifting Carter's origins from Virginia to either Alaska or Brooklyn, New York. Bob Gale's draft, completed in January 1991, made several changes to the Elliot Rossio script, including increasing Carter's age from 20 to 35 and reducing the amount of time spent on Earth before Carter travels to Mars. Still unhappy with how this screenplay was developing, McTiernan hired a sixth writer, Sam Resnick, who had recently completed work on the made-for-television film Robin Hood. This film was distributed internationally in cinemas. It starred um, Patrick Bergen and Uma Thurman. At the same time, Disney started negotiating with Tom Cruise to star as John Carter. They also started sounding out Julia Roberts for the role of the titular princess, Deja Thoris. 
The original plan for Princess of Mars was to recreate Burroughs' unusual Martian animals by dressing elephants and camels in elaborate costumes. This technique had been used already by George Lucas in Star Wars and seemed the most cost-effective method available. McTiernan, however, was increasingly convinced that the only way to to accurately bring the Martian wildlife to the screen was with computer-generated graphics. This plan wasn't particularly realistic. At this point, Steven Spielberg's Jurassic Park was still two years away, and even that film's dinosaurs were mostly developed and shot using macro puppetry and animatronics. Jim Morris, an effects worker at Industrial Light and Magic, who would later become one of the producers of Disney's John Carter in 2012, said, Computer graphics really hadn't gotten to the point where you could pull this kind of thing off. So it needed to be a mixture of prosthetics and suits and stop motion and things like that. It just seemed like way too big to pull off. Calculations made within Walt Disney Pictures placed the potential cost of McTiernan's film at $120 million, which at that point would make A Princess of Mars the most expensive feature film of all time. Without an approved budget, McTiernan resigned from the project in 1992, and under his pay-or-play deal with Disney, he still received a multi-million dollar payout for his time and work. Following McTiernan's departure, A Princess of Mars lay relatively fallow. By 1994, Carolco Pictures was on the verge of financial collapse, and they'd been forced to sell off their financial stake in a string of major action films, including Cliffhanger and Stargate. Continuing to support A Princess of Mars was just financially unfeasible, and so the company sold off its stake to Disney in order to concentrate on two alternative projects, an Arnold Schwarzenegger epic called Crusade and the pirate adventure Cutthroat Island. So in 1995, Disney hired the novelist and scriptwriter George R. R. Martin, subsequently to write the Game of Thrones books, to write a completely fresh take on the material. Martin was, by his own admission, not a keen fan of Burroughs' works, and his screenplay was subsequently rewritten by Star Trek The Next Generation story editor Melinda Snodgrass, but neither version of this script appeared to push the film any further towards production. In 2000, after 14 years in development and 8 separate takes on the novel, Walt Disney Pictures officially cancelled A Princess of Mars. The rights reverted back to the Burroughs estate. In 2002, it was Alphaville Productions who optioned the Barsoom novels with the backing of Paramount Pictures. The producers attached were Jim Jacks and Sean Daniel. Jacks had first the movie when reading the autobiography of the online film critic and webmaster Harry Knowles, a lifelong fan of the novels. Knowles was ultimately brought on board as a full co-producer on the film. The option agreement required Alphaville and Paramount to pay $300,000 up front and an additional $2 million if the film went into production. A short list of lead actors was prepared, including Matthew McConaughey, Hugh Jackman and Dwayne Johnson, although Jax was quick to assage fan concerns that a deal with The Rock was not already in the works. He said, We in the studio are really excited. We're not casting it yet, and so the reports of buying it for The Rock are untrue. Not saying he's on the list as John Carter, we love him and the movie world is about to discover that he's the real deal. But truthfully, as always, first things first, a great script based on the first book. Paramount's head Sherry Lansing had been discussing for some time the potential of signing Sam Raimi on to direct a big budget franchise picture for the studio. While Raimi was a fan of the novels and the character, and remained keen to work with Paramount, an agreement didn't come together. Most likely it was Raimi's work on Spider-Man and Spider-Man 2 for Columbia Pictures that put him out of the running. Instead, it was Robert Rodriguez who was offered the director's chair. This Texas-based filmmaker had made his name on inexpensive populist action films such as El Mariachi and Desperado. Having seen how Peter Jackson had produced the Lord of the Rings trilogy in New Zealand, boosting that local film industry at the time, Rodriguez proposed doing the same thing with The Princess of Mars and his hometown of Austin, Texas. A set of sound stages had already been built there to accommodate Rodriguez's forthcoming comic book adaptation, Sin City, and Paramount and Alphaville's representatives agreed that such a production location could be made to work. 
Rodriguez's other early decision in the development process was to hire the famed illustrator Frank Frazetta as the film's artistic consultant. Frazetta had cemented a reputation as one of the world's most popular fantasy artists with his lurid, muscular covers to not only Burroughs' Barsoom novels, but also Robert E. Howard's Conan the Barbarian books. For many fans of Burroughs, Frazetta's art was the most iconic representation of John Carter and Barsoom ever made. In November 2002, Alphaville and Paramount hired Mark Protozovich to write the screenplay. At that stage, Protozovich had only had one produced film, the, the 2000 film The Cell, but he developed a solid reputation as a genre screenwriter through his scripts for I Am Legend and an unmade fifth Batman movie for Warner Brothers. The Rodriguez version of this film was ultimately halted when the director resigned from the Directors Guild of America. He had directed Sin City in collaboration with the writer and artist Frank Miller. DGA regulations didn't allow its members to co-direct with non-members, and in protest of their ruling, Rodriguez resigned from the Guild. As Paramount Pictures had an agreement with the DGA not to use non-union actors on their films, this simply left Rodriguez out of the running to direct A Princess of Mars. In 2004, Paramount hired Kerry Conran as the replacement director. His debut film, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow, was a CGI-intensive pulp adventure shot entirely against blue screens, with sets and backgrounds inserted during post-production. Such a unique and inexpensive method of filmmaking likely appealed to Paramount Pictures, who would have been eyeing a Princess of Mars with one eye on the budget estimates. Also hired was the screenwriter Aaron Kruger, who wrote the American version of The Ring, in order to rewrite the screenplay more in line with Conran's wishes. At this stage, Paramount was planning a mid-2006 release for the film. While Conran developed the film for some time, including making plans for a location shoot in the Australian outback and setting the story in the present day, he ultimately stepped away from the project to concentrate on other films. Harry Knowles said, I love Kerry. We all did. Ultimately, though, Kerry found a couple of pulp properties that he was even more passionate about. In retrospect, it's not surprising that Conran moved on from A Princess of Mars. Even while developing the project at Paramount, he seemed less than completely invested in the picture. He told one interviewer, In truth, Princess of Mars was something that I never could have imagined even agreeing to do, or wanting to do in that regard, because I really only wanted to do my own stuff. As of March 2015, Sky Captain and the World of Tomorrow remains Kerry Conran's only feature film. I honestly, I have no idea what's happened to the guy. So in late 2005, Paramount moved on to their third director, John Favreau. The director explained, I was sitting down with the people from Paramount, just having a general meeting. At the end of the meeting I asked, so what's happening with John Carter? And they said, I think it's available. They sent me the books, I started reading them, I came in with a pitch, and they were very excited. It was a new regime over at Paramount, they're looking for a franchise, they were looking for something in the PG-13 world. Originally an actor, Favreau had entered into writing and directing films purely as a means of getting himself roles on screen. He made his first major impact in Hollywood with the 1996 comedy Swingers, which he both wrote and starred in. By late 2005, he had directed two films, the Swingers follow-up Made in 2001 and the Christmas-themed comedy Elf in 2003. His third film, the science fiction adventure Zathura, was nearing release. So Favreau relocated the film setting back into the 19th century and pushed the production away from the extensive CGI characters and backdrops suggested by Kerry Conran. Instead, he proposed shooting as much of the film as possible on location and to use physical props, costumes and prosthetic makeup wherever possible. His proposed budget, however, was too high for Paramount to approve. With studio and director reaching a stalemate, Favreau made a sideways step and signed up for Marvel Studios' Iron Man instead. So in August 2006, with no fourth director in sight, Paramount let their four-year option on Burroughs' novels lapse. Okay, 
So, once Paramount left the rights to Burroughs' works, it was Andrew Stanton who telephoned Walt Disney Pictures chair Dick Cook and attempted to persuade him to pick up the option. Andrew Stanton had been a fan of A Princess of Mars since childhood when he had discovered the monthly Marvel comic book based on the series. He said, I place a lot of value in stuff that won't leave my head, and those characters stayed with me. The Thark best friend, the loyal dog that was an alien creature, this woman he was fighting not to lose. The book seemed to hook a lot of boys when they're in their formative preteen years. Since that childhood, Stanton had established himself as one of the central creative minds at Pixar Animation Studios, and had directed their biggest ever hit, Finding Nemo, in 2003. In 2006, Stanton was deep in directing his follow-up, the science fiction animation Wally. Dick Cook was keen to foster new franchise opportunities for Disney, and Stanton's pitch of effectively Indiana Jones on Mars sounded like a potential moneymaker along the lines of Disney's Pirates of the Caribbean. Cook was also wary of upsetting anyone from Pixar, who, after Disney's successful purchase of the company earlier in the year, were now among the Disney Corporation's most powerful members. So on January 2007, after negotiating with the Burroughs estate, Walt Disney Pictures repurchased the film rights to the first three Barsoom novels. Stanton envisaged A Princess of Mars to be his first live-action feature film, having previously only worked in animation. He was also thinking much bigger than a one-off summer blockbuster. He said... When I offered to do this property with Disney, I said I only want to do it if we get the first three books and develop it as a trilogy. I was introduced to the books as an 11 book series, and I want to kick off like a series. Stanton was signed on to write and direct A Princess of Mars as his follow-up to Wally, and he commenced work on the screenplay while supervising Wally's post-production. Shortly after the production was announced to the press, Stanton was contacted directly by John Favreau, who congratulated him on the job and wished him the best with it. He also had one request, that he might cameo in Stanton's film. And cameo he does, as a Thark who takes bets during the aerial dogfight between Zadanga and Helium. As with John Favreau's attempt at directing the film, Stanton was keen to ensure the period setting of A Princess of Mars remained intact. He said... I mean, if I could be a kid in 1976 and fall in love with a book from 1912 for exactly its antiquated prose, then I had complete faith that somebody in 2012 could. To me, it was somehow breaking the barriers of time about it. It's not like you read Moby Dick and go, oh, we'd better put battleships and laser guns in it or else no one's going to watch this. I just feel that that completely underestimates the intelligence of the audience. Stanton had always developed his films with a single concept in mind, a phrase that summed up the themes and the emotional core of the movie in a succinct and evocative manner. When directing Finding Nemo, he had settled on, Fear denies a good father from being one. And for A Princess of Mars, he wrote, We survive to fulfil our purpose for others. In October 2007, Stanton accompanied his co-writer Mark Andrews and the producer Jim Morris on a trip to the offices of Edgar Rice Burroughs Incorporated. In a meeting with Edgar's grandson, Danton Burroughs, Stanton pitched his take on A Princess of Mars and received the family's personal blessing in return. To rework his and Mark Andrews' screenplay, Stanton hired the novelist Michael Chabon, who had already written for several big-budget Hollywood productions, including Sam Raimi's Spider-Man 2. Being asked to rewrite the director's own screenplay took Chabon by surprise. He later explained, Having a director who's also a writer hire someone to rewrite him, firing himself to some extent, is very rare. So by the end of 2008, Stanton had a complete screenplay and the film had a change of title. A Princess of Mars was retitled John Carter of Mars. At this stage of development, it was still unclear as to whether the film would be produced in live action or wholly in computer-generated animation. When asked about this, Stanton remained non-committal. We honestly don't know. It's clearly got to be a hybrid of some sort, he said. 
So the film ultimately went ahead as a live-action film with extensive CGI characters, creatures, and backgrounds. So complex were the visual effects that John Carter ultimately contained more computer animation than any of Stanton's Pixar films. The visual aesthetic of John Carter was a key concern. While the most famous renditions of Barsoom's exotic characters had all been painted by Frank Frazetta, Stanton was keen to find a fresh direction. He said, I love Frazetta's art, but I felt that kind of imagery had been paid homage to so much that if we tried to depict that literally, it would appear cliché. I wanted to treat it like a historical film rather than making it like something a 12-year-old kid geeked out on. Nathan Crowley was hired as the production designer. Crowley came to John Carter after serving as production designer on four Christopher Nolan films in a row, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, and The Dark Knight. And he'd been working in set and production design since 1991. He was a junior set designer on Steven Spielberg's Hook. Crowley supervised a team of conceptual artists, including Wayne Barlow, uh, Ryan Church, Michael Kutcher, Ian McCaig, and they developed Barsoom and its collective range of inhabitants. One of the most challenging elements of the film was the design of the Tharks, 15-foot-tall green aliens with four arms and fearsome tusks. Not only did hundreds, if not thousands, of Tharks appear in the film, two of the largest supporting characters were Tharks as well. The creature designer John Rosengrant said, Andrew wanted Tharks to be true to the Edgar Rice Burroughs tradition, green, with four arms and tusks. But he wanted wanted them to have a lean, African, Maasai warrior build. He wanted them to be elegant, sinewy and strong, and their body type had to have that kind of strength and proportion. Making the Tharks 15 feet tall, like they are in the novel, created a massive challenge for how the film would be shot. Because at that that, that height, the Tharks would dwarf Carter and the Red Martians, making two shots, you know, those shots in the film where two characters appear at the same time, almost impossible. After some experimenting with visual effects pre-visualizations, a revised height of roughly 9 feet was set, still much taller than Carter, but capable of sharing the screen with them at the same time. At Legacy Effects, attempts were made to give the Tharks a realistic anatomy and musculature, which came in handy when developing the look of their four arms. Rather than simply place two chests on top of each other, which was the solution taken by most illustrators of Burroughs' books, the designer Scott Patton created a five-point pectoral muscle over the chest, with a second pair of arms significantly shorter than the first. So the result was a creature that looked significantly more believable than previous versions of the Tharks had been. As the actors who would portray the lead Tharks had not been cast, effects designers substituted classic film actors when designing the key characters. So Clint Eastwood provided the visual inspiration for Tars Tarkas, for example, while his broken tusk rival Tal Hadges was modelled on Jack Palance. Early attempts to create the Red Martians with brightly coloured makeup ended in failure. Head of makeup William Corso settled on the concept of making the Red Martians deeply tanned compared to humans, but also giving them intricate red bright sort of body tattoos. This would enable the Red Martian name to make sense, but it would also allow the characters to both seem realistic and suggest a sense of their culture. So for large crowd scenes, actors were clothed in tan-coloured body stockings with tattoo patterns screened onto the surface. Lead actors, and those extras who would be clearly seen, endured three-hour makeup sessions every three to five days to achieve a more detailed effect. At its height, John Carter employed 118 makeup artists. By January 2009, Andrew Stanton was actively on the hunt for a lead actor to play John Carter. Rumours surrounded the possibility that the role would go to the Australian actor Hugh Jackman, but Stanton was quick to shoot these rumours down. I know everybody wanted Hugh Jackman forever, he admitted, but he's only getting older and more exposed now, so it's a tough call. I'm not your typical filmmaker, I want to find the next best unknown. Actors that Stanton would admit to being on the shortlist included Josh Tuamel from Transformers and John Hamm from Mad Men. But in the end, he cast the relatively unknown actor Taylor Kitsch. 
At the time, Kitchener's most prominent role was as Tim Riggins in the critically acclaimed television drama Friday Night Lights. Producer Jim Morris said, What we saw in the Riggins character and we saw in Taylor's screen test was a certain damaged quality behind the eyes. There's something a, a little broken. By the time he was cast, Kitch had also performed the role of Gambit in Gavin Hood's superhero adventure X-Men Origins, Wolverine. Kitch's casting was announced to the press in June 2009. It was seen by many Hollywood observers, and not incorrectly, that Disney was taking an enormous gamble, proceeding with a comparatively unknown lead actor for their summer blockbuster. For his own part, Taylor Kitsch genuinely enjoyed the experience of playing John Carter. He said, I fight with my director on every film, fight out of passion, but I never had a fight with Andrew, even on day 80 in the miserable fucking desert, because I respect him so much. The other leading role, that of the Martian princess Deja Thoris, proved a more difficult character to translate to the screen. Stanton said, I thought that I couldn't hide that she's technically a princess, but I can make sure she has as much investment and drive and as much of a goal, if not more, than Carter for why she's in the story. That's what I tried hard to do, but I wasn't going to try to hide from the femininity. I feel that would be a knee-jerk, small-minded, male way of approaching it. Stanton's preferred actress for the part was the Texas-born actress Lynn Collins, who had co-starred with Taylor Kitsch on Wolverine. Collins was a trained martial artist as well as a Juilliard graduate, providing Stanton with a good actor and a good action star in the one performer. At this stage in pre-production, one would assume that somebody at Walt Disney Pictures would object, or at least very gently raise concern. If such concerns were voiced, it didn't filter outside the company to the press. As the powerful Thark chieftain Tars Tarkas, Stanton cast Willem Dafoe. Defoe had previously worked on his Pixar animation Finding Nemo, and to Stanton's surprise, was genuinely keen to play the character. Not despite the challenges of performing a digital character, but because of them. Defoe's extensive theatrical experience came in handy, as he was required to perform his role in the studio and on location wearing stilts. Of the challenge, Defoe said, It's a work in progress, but we got a little time before to rehearse, and so you just keep it up. But each time it's a new challenge, because the terrain's different, the quality of the sand's different. But it's very important, because that height relationship not only helps technically with direct eye lines when mixing effect-orientated stuff with real actors, but also you find the voice much better, and you play the scenes much better when you're that character. A specially mounted camera was attached to a helmet, and this allowed visual effects workers to capture Defoe's facial expressions on the set and location, and actually translate them to the finished digital character. Tar's daughter Sola was played by the English actress Samantha Morton, from Sweet and Lowdown, Minority Report, many other films. And while Tal Halgis was played by Thomas Hayden Church, from Sideways and Spider-Man 3. Like Defoe, both performers wore stilts and had their facial expressions captured for the visual effects team to manipulate. I prefer being on the stilts, said Church. I think Willem does too, because it just becomes the character to me, to be 8 foot 7 and still be independently mobile. I spend a lot of time rehearsing on them by myself at the ranch where I live in Texas. They sent me stilts probably in November, and I just started like a baby, just getting up on them and moving around and getting better and better and better. Then at the stunt camp in January, I had a greater awareness of what was going to be expected as far as manipulating and movements, that sort of thing. For her part, Morton saw little difference between playing a computer-generated reptile and any other role in her extensive career. She said, I think that with with every performance I do and every part I do, there's either someone in a wig or a complicated costume. doesn't make a difference if it's set in the 17th century or in the future like Minority Report. It's really the same. An impressive lineup of British actors played the other lead roles in the film. Ciaran Hines played um, Tardos Moors, the king of the Martian city-state of Helium. The Northern Irish actor had appeared in a range of film, television and theatre productions, including The Sum of All Fears, Road to Perdition, The Phantom of the Opera and Munich. 
James Purefoy played Helium Commander Kantos Kan. The English actor had, like Hines, worked in a variety of media and in numerous films, including Mansfield Park and Knight's Tale, Resident Evil, Solomon Kane and Ironclad. Interestingly, both Hines and Purefoy had previously worked together on the BBC HBO co-production Rome. Polly Walker, who played the Thark zealot Sarjoka, had also starred in the series. A fourth Rome actor, Kevin McKidd, was considered for John Carter but couldn't appear due to his commitments to the TV series Grey's Anatomy. One wonders if this is all a coincidence or if Andrew Stanton is just a particularly keen fan of Rome. Dominic West played Sab Than, the villain, villainous ruler of the rival nation Zadanga. West remains best known for a starring role as the Baltimore police detective Jimmy McNulty in the acclaimed HBO drama The Wire. But by the time of John Carter's shooting, he'd also appeared in Chicago, Mona Lisa Smile, Punisher, Warzone, and Centurion. Mark Strong played the film's ultimate villain, the mysterious Thurn leader Matai Shang. Strong had established a relatively lucrative career, playing the villain in a range of Hollywood productions, including Sunshine, Stardust, Sherlock Holmes, Robin Hood, Kick-Ass, and Green Lantern. One surprising addition to the cast was Brian Cranston. The acclaimed dramatic actor was gaining rave reviews for his performance in the TV series Breaking Bad, yet he still managed to find time to appear in John Carter as Colonel Powell, an Arizona army officer who appears in a small but crucial role early in the film. Now, as the developing film neared production, executives at Walt Disney Pictures must have realised what an extraordinary financial risk they were taking. John Carter of Mars was an adaptation of a novel almost a century old, whose best-selling points had already been strip-mined by George Lucas and James Cameron. The film was to be directed by a man who had never helmed a live-action feature before, and starred two actors with no star profile or an ability to sell the film to the public. Any actors who might have been recognisable to a mass audience, such as Willem Dafoe, Thomas Hayden Church or Samantha Morton, were to be hidden by computer graphics. On top of everything else, John Carter of Mars was set to be a stunningly expensive production, with budgetary estimates hovering around the $200 million mark. Despite these risks, not a single Disney executive visited the set or location for the entire original shoot. They're too afraid of me, remarked Stanton. They want me happy at Pixar, so I thought I should use this for good and make the movie the way I always thought it should be made. If at any one of those points they were going to push back, I would have pulled out. It's the best way to buy a car. I don't mind walking away. By all accounts, the final production budget was set at approximately $250 million, making John Carter one of the most costly films of all time. Why did Walt Disney Pictures acquiesce to such a large sum of money on an untested, troubled property? There are basically three explanations. Firstly, it is possible that Dick Cook and others at the executive level simply loved what they saw and anticipated the film would be a massive success. At the time, Walt Disney was frustratingly short on intellectual property aimed at young boys, and other attempts at generating or reviving that IP was ending in failure. The second possibility is that Disney was keen to keep its production partners at Pixar happy. Pixar generated vast amounts of revenue for the company, not just in box office dollars, but also in terms of licensing fees and merchandise. So if Andrew Stanton wanted to make John Carter of Mars, and Pixar head John Lasseter was supportive of that, Cook may have simply seen the project as the cost of doing business. The third possibility is that Cook and his fellow executives may simply have trusted in Andrew Stanton. Twice at Pixar, he had pushed for and directed what were seen as difficult cells. Finding Nemo was a cartoon about fish, and not a premise that anyone within Disney was initially that keen on. Wally was an even bigger gamble. Not only did its robotic protagonist not speak, but no one speaks for the first half hour of the film. That both of these films not only succeeded, but succeeded wildly, could easily have weighed on Disney's decision regarding John Carter. Did they fully appreciate the commercial potential of that film? Perhaps not. 
but they might have trusted in Andrew Stanton's ability to appreciate it in their stead. Due to all of this publicity surrounding the launch of John Carter of Mars, an independent production company called The Asylum elected to profit from the public interest in Barsoom. The Asylum is a, they're a notorious producer of direct-to-video films known as Mockbusters. The company takes a popular studio picture, changes the story and characters just enough so they can't easily be sued, and then rush-release their low-budget copy into video stores to profit from the interest in the more expensive video, the more expensive studio films. Sorry. So as the first Barsoom novel, A Princess of Mars, at this point was in the public domain, it was a simple task to undertake a direct adaptation of the novel and just release it into stores across America. For Barsoom enthusiasts who had waited decades for a film adaptation to come along, A Princess of Mars was, in 2009, the first out of the gate. It starred Z-list actors Antonio Sabato Jr. and Tracy Lords, and it rapidly sank without a trace, forgotten by audiences almost as soon as it was released. Of course, a much more serious competitor for John Carter of Mars was Avatar. This massively expensive 20th Century Fox epic featured a broken ex-soldier travelling to another planet, encountering a species of tall blue natives and saving them from an advancing human army. Not only did the film bear extensive similarities to A Princess of Mars, and Dances of the Wolves, and Fern Gully The Last Rainforest, and any number of other texts, writer-director James Cameron openly admitted that it was a source. He said, With Avatar, I thought... Forget all these chick flicks and do a classic guy's adventure movie, something in the Edgar Rice Burroughs mould, like John Carter of Mars, A Soldier Goes to Mars. Avatar was released in December 2009 and became the highest grossing feature film of all time. At the time of its release, John Carter of Mars had not even started filming. So on the 19th of September 2009, Disney studio chief Dick Cook met with the chief executive Robert Iger and was informed his services were no longer required. A few weeks after Cook's forced resignation, the Disney Channel head of global operations, Rich Ross, was promoted to Walt Disney Studio Chair. He inherited a large slate of in-development and in-production films, including the sci-fi sequel Tron Legacy, the pulp western The Lone Ranger, a new adaptation of 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and John Carter of Mars. In the New York Times, Brooke Barnes wrote about about Ross's strategy for Walt Disney Pictures' future. He wrote, Mr. Ross is no longer interested in developing projects, big or small, that cannot be squarely branded under one of three banners, Disney, Family, Pixar, Animation, and Marvel, Superheroes, the better to cut through the marketplace clutter. So John Carter of Mars was left in a difficult position under Ross's strategy. It was a film directed and produced by Pixar personnel that featured a superheroic protagonist, yet it was aimed at a broad family market. So it fell directly between all three of Ross's banners. Ross was also keen to halt production on any films whose budgets were looking too large. Both John Carter and Tron Legacy managed to escape the axe because both films were too far along the production process to easily stop. But 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea was cancelled completely, and The Lone Ranger was suspended until $50 million could be trimmed from its budget. Filming of Disney's John Carter of Mars commenced at London's Shepperton Studios in January 2010. Due to the scale of the production, additional shooting was undertaken 12 kilometres down the road at the Longcross Studios in Surrey, as well as within a disused warehouse in Greenford. Prior to the studio shoot, an aerial reconnaissance trip was made by director of photography Dan Mindell to Utah, so the studio lighting would match the harsh desert light that would be captured on location. After a near four-month studio shoot, the production relocated to Utah to shoot on location in Moab, Lake Powell, Hanksville and Big Water. Utah was the perfect choice for simulating the surface of Mars. NASA had tested its Mars rovers there for that exact reason. Producer Jim Morrison said, As much as possible, we decided to shoot in actual locations and minimise the amount of digital set creation so that the audience always felt they were grounded in real places. 
Andrew Stanton said, There's something about the northern part of the Grand Canyon going into Utah. You can just tell that the whole landscape was once underwater. That's pretty much the topography of Mars, and that is how it's described from a romantic viewpoint in the fantasies of Edgar Rice Burroughs. It was the perfect location. To create the vast cities of Mars, only the first floor of each building was constructed on location, with the remainder generated with computer graphics during post-production. Nathan Crowley said, We're dealing with three main cultures on Barsoom, Zadanga, Helium, and the Thark culture. With three different cultures, we needed three different types of architecture. The design of each culture was specifically tailored to the real-world location, so that each culture and city visited during the movie would feel organically created and fully believable. The crew worked to ensure that the film's CGI-heavy photography never extended beyond what could be captured with an actual camera, had the cities and Martian locations actually existed. Jim Morris said, We tried to be very careful in always having the camera be somewhere that's credible. Maybe it's on another flyer or something like that. Could have been shot from a helicopter. But never an impossible point of view shot or camera staging. We didn't want to break the believability. We wanted people to feel like they were there. The location shoot wound up in July 2010, almost seven months after shooting had commenced. As visual effects work started, one of the more unusual creatures required was Wooler, a ten-legged alien dog that would endear itself to Carter as some sort of unofficial pet. Wooler was required to run at near supersonic speeds, which posed a, ser- posted a serious challenge for the effects team. Scott Patton explained, Andrews had a rough sketch of Wooler with little spinning circles and a dust cloud under him, like a character from Peanuts. He said, Wooler's got to feel like that. The finished creature was easily the most Pixar-like creation of the entire film, yet to the effects team's credit, this cartoonish animal still manages to fit in believably, among other less outlandish creatures and monsters. Wooler's lead animator Craig Bardsley said, We over-animated Wooler at first, which can be a tendency in animation. Andrew said, Pull it back. So we stopped making Wooler look like you could understand what John Carter was saying, and made him stare like a real dog. A little bit vacant, but he loves his master and doesn't care what he's saying. Suddenly the character came to life. In August 2010, Walt Disney Pictures announced that John Carter of Mars would be released worldwide on the 6th of June 2012, right in the middle of the competitive summer period. Four months later, in December 2010, Stanton screened a lengthy rough cut of the film to Pixar's Brains Trust. This was essentially a gathering of the animation studio's directors and producers, including John Lasseter and Pete Docter. It was a standard process undertaken regularly for Pixar's own films, and the Brains Trust had started to consult on a number of Walt Disney Pictures productions as well, including Tron Legacy and The Muppets. By all accounts, the consultation did not go well. The group found the film's opening, essentially a lecture by Deja Thoris on the wars of Barsoom, dull and confusing. The film as a whole felt cold and uninvolving. While they did appreciate the changes made to the character of John Carter himself, making him a more complex and proactive person than Burroughs had envisaged, the film surrounding him didn't appear to work. In response to the meeting, Stanton undertook a comparatively lengthy reshoot. Some scenes were added, including an action-packed new opening, while others were adjusted to give the characters more warmth and personality. The new shoot took 18 days to complete, in August 2011. As these scenes were primarily recorded against a green screen, the financial cost of the extended reshoot was not large. Following the reshoots, a rough cut of the film was screened to 400 people invited from the public. The screening went exceptionally well, with 75% of viewers polled rating the unfinished film as either excellent or very good. A post-screening focus group identified John Carter himself as the most popular character, and his epic fight against several hundred Warhoon soldiers the most popular scene. With Disney's blessing, Stanton took the feedback from the screening and used it to inform yet more reshoots. He travelled to London to record a short scene between Dominic West and Mark Strong that he hoped would elaborate more on the film's plot and he reunited with Taylor Kitsch and Lynn Carter to revise part of the film's climax. 
Undertaking a series of regular reshoots was something born from Stanton's experience at Pixar. There a film would be assembled and revised on a near constant basis as the production developed, and it was a constant development of the work that many in Pixar pointed to as giving their film such a high quality. In live-action film, however, reshoots are generally a sign that a film is being desperately retooled because it's not working. While this was reportedly not the case, news of the reshoots led many in the entertainment press to speculate that this was what was going on. In response to the test screening, as well as internal assessments by the company's marketing department, Walt Disney Pictures retitled the film, From John Carter of Mars to simply John Carter. Precisely why Disney chose to give their massively expensive summer blockbuster such an oddly generic name remains open to question. Many have pointed to Disney's animated feature Mars Needs Mums, which had disastrously opened that March, resulting in a $136 million write-off for the company. If that pricey Mars-based film had failed to find an audience, would John Carter of Mars fail just as badly? Even looking back to 2000, Disney's expensive mission to Mars had also failed to find its audience. Perhaps the company was simply Mars-averse. A more likely explanation comes from Disney's attempts to make their films what's called four-quadrant hits. In the Hollywood movie, audiences are basically split two ways, male and female, and under 25, and over 25. So if you can imagine drawing, you know, a grid on a page. So you've got left to right, maybe say left is male, right is female, got a vertical line. The bottom of that vertical line is under 25, top line is over 25. So you basically get four quadrants, you know, older men, younger men, older women, younger women. The more quadrants a film can appeal to, the more successful it's likely to be. So a violent action film typically appeals to men over 25. An animated film about princesses and unicorns will likely appeal most to an under-25 female quadrant. In 2009, Walt Disney Pictures released The Princess and the Frog, which was a critically acclaimed animated film in the tradition of past hits such as Aladdin, The Little Mermaid and The Lion King. Despite great reviews and high scores across the board in test screenings, the film comparatively underperformed. And market research indicated the problem was with the title. By including the word princess, Disney had turned off boys from wanting to see the film. For 2010's animated release, Disney retitled their film from Rapunzel to the more gender-neutral Tangled. They also emphasised both the male and female leads in the film's publicity. And the result was that Tangled, while receiving similar acclaim to The Princess and the Frog, significantly outperformed it. $590 million worldwide versus $267 million. Jump back forward to 2011. Market research was indicating that the word Mars was discouraging female audiences from wanting to see John Carter. So to ensure a four-quadrant hit, Disney simply removed the offending word. There was a certain kind of logic to the move, but it left their film with perhaps the oddest and dullest title of any science fiction epic ever made. Like retitling Star Wars to Luke Skywalker or changing Avatar to just Jake Sully. The problem was not helped by the fact that, as a literary character, John Carter of Mars had less brand awareness among audiences than John Carter of Chicago, one of the doctors in the hit NBC drama ER, played by Noah Wiley. The ER character was in fact named in tribute to Burroughs' John Carter by the series creator, Michael Crichton. In January 2011, Disney shifted John Carter's release date, bringing it forward from June to the 9th of March 2012. The move briefly brought John Carter into competition with Prometheus, the big-budget science fiction thriller from Ridley Scott. By the end of the month, however, 20th Century Fox shifted Prometheus from 9th of March to 8th of June, the exact slot that John Carter had vacated. Moving John Carter to March gave the film the advantage of stepping out of the competitive summer season, but it also meant the film was launching at a time of year when not as many people in the USA were going to the cinema. In a typical year, Hollywood grosses an amount in March roughly equal to 50% of its June take. John Carter would have less competition, but also less money to potentially earn. 
What little competition John Carter had, however, was concerning. A week before its release, Universal Pictures was set to release The Lorax, an animated family film based on the book by Dr. Seuss. And two weeks after John Carter's release, Lionsgate was set to open The Hunger Games, a widely anticipated action film aimed at the very same teens that formed John Carter's core demographic. If The Lorax opened better than anticipated, it would cut into John Carter's potential the following week. And if John Carter's box office faltered from the beginning, The Hunger Games would ensure it had no second chance to attract an audience. The second weekend in March was also an odd one for Walt Disney Pictures. In 2010, it had gambled on releasing Tim Burton's Alice in Wonderland on that date, a gamble that paid off with Alice grossing more than $1 billion worldwide. The following year, they attempted to use the same weekend to release Mars Needs Mums, creating the biggest money loser in the company's history. By this stage, the decision had been made to release John Carter in stereoscopic 3D. As the film had been produced on 35mm film, the footage was then adjusted to simulate a three-dimensional image in post-production. Regarding the conversion, Stanton said, I shot it intentionally as a 2D film for people like me, who like to go to 2D. I just wanted there to be fair choice, because I know some people like their 3D, and some people don't, and they tend not to cross over. As 2012 approached, Andrew Stanton hired composer Michael Giacchino to develop the film's orchestral score. Giacchino had originally developed his career by scoring the television dramas of writer-producer J.J. Abrams, but had since expanded his repertoire to work with Pixar Animation Studios and a number of other clients. In 2007, he had been nominated for an Academy Award for his score to Pixar's Ratatouille, and two years later he actually won the Oscar for his score to Up. Giacchino gave the film a highly traditional score, echoing earlier works by John Williams, as well as giving the film a vaguely Arabian Nights feel. Giacchino's score was commercially released at the same time as the film. Along with the book The Art of John Carter, it was one of the few pieces of merchandise that it inspired. While Stanton had always envisaged John Carter as the first part of a trilogy, Walt Disney Pictures wouldn't greenlight a second film until the first had proved itself in the marketplace. Given the extensive production and marketing costs, John Carter would need to earn at least $700 million worldwide to warrant a follow-up. Despite this requirement, in September 2011, Disney gave the go-ahead for Stanton and Michael Chabon to begin work on the story for a follow-up, to be based on Burroughs' 1918 novel The Gods of Mars. Commissioning the storyline didn't guarantee a sequel, of course, but it did give Disney a head start on producing one if audiences responded positively to the original. A teaser trailer to the film was released in July 2011, and it seemed to confuse viewers more than interest them. For an action film, John Carter appeared to be considerably lacking in action. When Disney's marketing representatives visited Andrew Stanton in the spring of 2011, they were shocked to discover that few finished visual effects shots were available. Typically, a big-budget Hollywood picture will produce several key visual effects shots early on so they can be used in the trailers and other marketing initiatives. Stanton, who was a newcomer to live-action cinema, hadn't allowed for this, and the lack of the film's most impressive shots made editing together a suitable trailer fiendishly difficult. Things were complicated when Stanton insisted on personally supervising the trailers himself. He wanted to avoid the current trend of revealing too much of a film's narrative in the trailer, and to leave as many surprises as possible for when audiences sat down to see the finished film. It is arguable that Stanton held too much back, leaving Disney advertising a film with the bare minimum of content. He also insisted that the trailers not mention his work for Pixar, fearing that the audiences would assume John Carter was for children. A full theatrical trailer followed in November and provided a better look at the protagonist, but it still failed to attract attention or build any hype. Entertainment Weekly summed up public reaction to the trailers as, quote, Wow, pretty colours. Hmm, green people. Say, shirtless Tim Riggins. I have no idea what this film is about. Yet another trailer was released, less than two weeks before the film was due to open, this time edited at a much faster pace and emphasising plot and action over tone and theme. For many potential viewers, it will be a case of too little, too late.
In the lead up to the film's release, Disney's marketing team made a number of other strange choices. They elected not to promote John Carter at the popular San Diego Comic Con, choosing instead to promote it at the more exclusive Walt Disney D23 Expo, where it was immediately overshadowed by Marvel Studios' The Avengers. Also strange was the choice to commission a teaser and theatrical poster for the film from two different design firms, and then to design the in-cinema promotional banners in-house. This gave the film's print marketing an inconsistent and confused look, further muddying Disney's chances of developing John Carter's audience. An advertisement played during the 2012 Super Bowl purchased at a cost of $3.5 million, and it misfired spectacularly. The 60-second advertisement was split 50-50 between a sweepstake competition to win a trip to the 2013 Super Bowl and a 30-second advertisement for John Carter. When Disney's assigned advertisement break was truncated on the day, the sweepstake was advertised, but not John Carter. This was one of the most disorganised and uncertain advertising campaigns in Hollywood history. Three trailers in seven months, none of which appeared to match each other in tone, none of which properly expressed the movie, none of which which bothered to mention that the film was from the creator of Tarzan or the director of Finding Nemo or Wally, or that it was based on a novel that had inspired several of Hollywood's greatest hits. In the words of one anonymous studio insider, This is one of the worst marketing campaigns in the history of movies. It's almost as if they went out of their way to not make us care. Part of the trailer's problems was that while they should have been evoking memories of Star Wars and Avatar, they seemed deliberately edited to evoke memories of other more recent Hollywood flops. The desert setting and romantic themes reminded audiences of Disney's underwhelming 2011 fantasy film Prince of Persia. The 19th century American hero fighting aliens looked reminiscent of 2011's box office disaster Cowboys and Aliens. Shots of an alien arena looked like outtakes from Star Wars Episode II, Attack of the Clones. Worst of all, the trailers appeared to have been made under the assumption that audiences would immediately know who John Carter was, as if he was a famous pop culture icon, such as Tarzan, Sherlock Holmes, or Superman. In truth, the majority of cinemagoers had never heard of him. The shadow of Prince of Persia most likely cast a shadow over John Carter's merchandising chances. Toys and collectibles released for the earlier film didn't sell, leaving many licensing partners leery of gambling on another untested property that, superficially at least, shared many similarities with it. Lego, for example, had a contract with Walt Disney Pictures that would see them produce construction toys based on Toy Story 3, Cars 2, The Avengers, Pirates of the Caribbean and Prince of Persia, but not John Carter. Everyone within Walt Disney Pictures seemed aware that John Carter was about to flop. Market research indicated that while awareness of the film was rising, interest in the film was actually falling. In short, the more audiences learnt about John Carter, the less they wanted to go and see it. Chief Executive Robert Iger made it clear to senior managers in advance there was to be no finger-pointing or attempts at placing blame for the film's failure to the press. On the weekend of John Carter's release, as the underwhelming box office figures came in, Disney's chair, Rich Ross, simply stated, movie-making does not come without risk. The weekend before John Carter's release, the Universal Pictures cartoon The Lorax opened to a $70 million windfall, shattering industry projections and becoming the third largest March opening in Hollywood history. The following weekend, the Lorax's forward momentum earned it an additional $38 million. John Carter, saddled with weak publicity and an entertainment press seemingly obsessed with labelling it a flop, opened to grosses just north of $30 million. This was roughly half of what it was required to earn if Disney was to have a hope of earning its money back. John Carter's second weekend saw it relegated to third place behind the new arrival 21 Jump Street, $36 million, and the remarkably robust Lorax, which earned another $23 million. John Carter suffered a 55% downturn in box office, earning just $13.6 million. Including midweek sales, it had managed to get $53 million. And this third weekend, as I mentioned, saw the release of Lionsgate's wildly anticipated The Hunger Games, which smashed the Mark's box office record with a haul of $153 million. John Carter was down to fourth place, earning just $5 million. 
By the conclusion of its theatrical run, John Carter had grossed $73.1 million in American cinemas. International sales were more robust, as they often are for genre pictures. An international gross of $209.7 million brought John Carter's total gross to $283 million, roughly $67 million short of the combined cost of producing and marketing it. I would do John Carter again tomorrow, said Taylor Kitsch. I'm very proud of John Carter. Box office doesn't validate me as a person or as an actor. Kitsch's statement seemed oddly prescient. His next film, Universal, Universal's lavish board game adaptation, Battleship, lost its studio $80 million. The reviews for John Carter varied, but were generally lukewarm. Entertainment Weekly's Owen Gleiberman described the film as, quote, a coma-inducing disaster of arid pulp storytelling and CGI overkill. Conversely, in The Village Voice, Mark Holcomb noted, The achievement of John Carter is that it takes the elements worn to nubs by everything from Star Wars to Avatar to TV's fringe and makes them fresh again. The New York Post's Lou Luminick described the film as interminably long, dull and incomprehensible, writing that John Carter evokes pretty much every sci-fi classic from the past 50 years without having any personality of its own. On the other hand, the Boston Globe's Ty Burr called the film pretty amazing, an epic pulp saga that slowly rises to the level of its best imitations and wins you over by degrees. To my mind, many of the critical responses to John Carter stemmed from whatever prejudices and predispositions each individual critic brought to the film. Fans of science fiction had much to be pleased with, while those who disliked computer-generated characters and settings would find many elements tedious and irritating. The film's a bold combination of very odd elements, notably the swashbuckling Burroughs adventure and very contemporary takes on many of the other characters. In terms of visual aesthetic and design, it contains some remarkable work, but in terms of tone and narrative, it presents a story that has been regrettably strip-mined by generations of derivative filmmakers. This strip-mining process has presented Andrew Stanton with an impossible challenge for the film. Should he completely re-envisage the material, making it seem less similar to those derivative film works, or should he stay true to Burroughs' works and make an authentic adaptation of the novel? The former makes the entire adaptation process redundant, while the latter risks making his own film seem tired and overly familiar. In the end, he appears to have elected a middle course, sticking close to the book in broad terms, yet finding new angles for the material as he goes. The film does begin rather confusingly, with what essentially makes up three separate openings. We're first induced, in, introduced, rather... Um, abruptly to Zadangan Warlord Sab Than, the waters as Anger and Helium, and the mysterious Thurn in the space of about four minutes. This first introduction was one of the scenes included in Stanton's first reshoot, and replaces the more sedate introduction to Barsoom and its conflict by Dejah Thoris. I can't help but feel this first scene is a critical misstep. It confuses rather than clarifies, and instead of elegantly introducing the audience to Barsoom through the viewpoint of John Carter, we're instead thrown into a deep end of strange names, costumes, and flying vehicles. The film then jumps to 19th century Earth, where a grim-looking John Carter sends a telegram while being shadowed by a creepy man in a hat, and then Carter's nephew, Edgar Ned Rice Burroughs, played by Daryl Sabara, arrives in response to the telegram, to discover that Carter has unexpectedly died, leaving Burroughs both his estate and his journal. Once Burroughs begins to read the journal, we jump again to the Arizona Territory in the aftermath of the Civil War. Even an even more dour and unhappy Carter is searching for a mysterious cave of gold, one marked by a strange spider-like symbol. He's arrested by Union Colonel Powell, Brian Cranston, escapes, is pursued by Apache riders, finds and hides in the spider cave, is almost stabbed by a very surprised Thurn, and finds himself transported millions of miles across space to the middle of a Martian desert. This first 20 minutes of John Carter is an enormous hurdle for audiences to vault over. It arguably takes three attempts in a row for the audience to get a satisfactory handle on any of the characters. The framing narrative of Burroughs reading Carter's journal is a serviceable one, and indeed gives the film a wonderful conclusion two hours down the line. But coming directly after Sab Than's first meeting with Matai Shang, it feels like a problematic case of too many characters in context too soon. 
I wouldn't be surprised if this is the point where John Carter lost a lot of the critics and viewers who ultimately didn't like the film. Stanton didn't want to make a traditional film opening where the alien world is introduced solely through the protagonist's experience, but the fact is that a traditional film opening is usually traditional for a reason. It works. Once Carter is on Mars, the film immediately becomes a lot easier to engage with, and subsequently considerably more enjoyable. Shortly after arriving, and learning that in the lower gravity he's super strong and able to leap vast distances, Carter is captured by Tars Tarkas, the enthused emperor of the Tharks. And the Tharks are a masterpiece of design and computer-generated imagery. It's clear that genuine thought has gone behind the creation. Their anatomy makes sense, they use their forearms in instinctive and believable ways, their faces are expressive, and their culture is visibly rich and understandable. The male and female Tharks are different and immediately recognisable as such, but without the design team having relied on an old cliché like giving the female Tharks breasts. Willem Dafoe delivers a great performance as Tars, ensuring that he becomes a fully-fledged character and not simply a plot mechanism disguised as a visual effect. On a personal level, he's my favourite character in the film. The other three Thark performers are no slouches either. Samantha Morton makes Solar an engaging and sympathetic sidekick for Carter. Polly Walker plays that Thark you love to hate, while Thomas Hayden Church growls and snarls his way through the scenery in the most satisfying of fashions. The film does slip into shaky ground again when it cuts to the city-state of Helium, whereas Princess Deja Thoris is attempting to harness the power of the Ninth Ray technology that may save her people from the advancing army of Sabthan and Zadanga. The pulp origins of the film are really laid bare for the first time here, as some of the nomenclature feels completely ridiculous. A city named Helium? Is it down the road from Radium or Cadmium? A Ninth Ray? What are the first through eighth rays? In these early scenes, the Red Martians are extremely difficult to engage with, because we don't have a character in the room with whom to engage. Had the film held off from introducing the Red Martians until Carter rescued Deja from Sabthan, it would have been easier to understand. From the second viewing onwards, this isn't a problem, but in the the all-important first viewing, it's an excuse for the audience to disengage. When Deja's father announces she's to marry Sabthan in order to broker a peace, she makes a run for it and is immediately rescued by Carter in an aerial battle over the Thark settlement. The film is at its most enjoyable once Carter, Deja and Solo are teamed up together. It all finally feels as if it's going somewhere. The journey to the sacred river of Is is in turns humorous, dramatic and intriguing, as is Carter and Deja's discovery of a Thern temple at the river's end. A subsequent race to escape the Thark-like warhoons provides one of the film's most emotionally satisfying moments, with Carter's pitched sword fight against a horde of warriors intercut with the death and burial of his Earth family. Andrew Stanton's changes to the character of John Carter improve the story immeasurably. They take a one-dimensional pulp hero and transform him into something with which a contemporary audience can better relate. It gives the character a strong emotional arc, denied to him in the vastly more superficial novel. It also symbolises Stanton's overall statement for the film, we survive to fill up a purpose for others. Fate may have destroyed Carter's life on Earth, but it has also delivered him a new one on Mars. Taylor Kitsch gives a very understated and wounded performance as Carter. It takes until his rescue of Dejah Thoris to do anything particularly noble or heroic, yet we identify with him from the get-go. His easy identification is due in large part to Kitsch. Carter and Deja are rescued at this point by a helium airship, and to save her city, Deja reluctantly agrees to marry Sabthan. Carter, meanwhile, is captured by Matai Shang, and learns of the Thern's plans to manipulate Martian society into destroying itself. The Therns have been pulled out of the second Barsoom novel, The Gods of Mars, and their presence here allows the narrative to be sufficiently complex for a modern action film. Mark Strong plays Matai Shang very well, in a very loose, relaxed fashion. His conversation with Carter provides a well-written summation of the film's antagonists, and sets the film off with a clear direction towards the climax. Matai Shang's opulent grey robes are also a good example of John Carter's wonderful costume design, which is evocative 
uh, intricate and beautiful, given how much of Barsoom's aesthetic has been co-opted by the Star Wars saga, particularly Return of the Jedi. It's impressive how imp- effectively the designers have given John Carter such a fresh look. When Carter escapes and attempts to return to the Tharks and raise an army, he finds Tars Tarkas deposed and the Tharks under the control of Tal Hudges, Thomas Hayden Church. Carter, Tars and Sola are thrown into the arena to fight a pair of enormous white apes. The arena sequence is a well-directed action scene, however it suffers from comparisons to George Lucas's Star Wars Episode II, which contain a near-identical sequence. Stanton directs a considerably more suspenseful version of the scene, but there's no escaping that Lucas had already mined this particular Barsoomian element. In fact, Lucas mined it twice if you consider the Rancor fight in Return of the Jedi. The arena fight is emblematic of John Carter's largest and most unavoidable problem. Despite its origins in a century-old book, the film cannot escape the fact that the rest of Hollywood got here first. It's unfortunate, it's incredibly unfair, but it's also something that requires better negotiation than Stanton has given it. What he has done with John Carter is take a very old-fashioned, arguably outdated text, and adapt it marvellously to the screen, but what he hasn't done is given audiences something that they haven't seen before. This problem is not eased by the film's climax, in which Carter leads the Tharks to an assault on Sabdan and Deja's wedding that is eerily reminiscent of the climax to Mike Hodger's 1980 space opera Flash Gordon, which itself adapted a comic strip and movie serial that was largely derivative of of Burroughs' Barsoom. I think this makes John Carter an extremely fascinating text to examine, since when you take in all the elements, the execution of them, and the film's overall context within science fiction and blockbuster cinema, you find yourself with a film that is impressively and often impeccably produced, yet which ultimately has no reason to exist. It has a strong, talented cast who give their characters an unusual amount of depth. It is blessed with beautiful production design and exceptional computer-generated animation, as one would expect from Pixar's most effective director. It duplicates all of the elements already seen in other science fiction films. Return of the Jedi, Attack of the Clones, Avatar, Flash Gordon, even films such as Dune, Planet of the Apes and Superman. And in pretty much every case it duplicates them in a superior fashion. It's still duplication, however. Duplication of material lifted from, inspired by, or stolen from Burroughs, for certain. But we have seen it all before. As the dust settled on John Carter's poor opening, the Walt Disney Company set about examining the damage. An official statement from Disney read, In light of the theatrical performance of John Carter, we expect the film to generate an operating loss of approximately $200 million during our second financial quarter ending March 31st. Even adjusted for inflation, it was the single greatest financial loss ever for a motion picture, overtaking 1995's Cutthroat Island, which lost about $150 million in 2012's money, by more than 30%. On the 20th of April, studio chair Rich Ross stepped down from his post, stating, I no longer believe the chairman role is the right professional fit for me. The failure of John Carter was widely seen as a significant factor in his resignation. Andrew Stanton appeared to immediately go out of his way to appease Walt Disney by agreeing to write and direct Finding Nemo 2, a sequel that had been asked for since the original success, but which Stanton had always refused to make. Stanton's dream of directing a complete trilogy of Barsoom Adventures was dead within a week of John Carter's release. Walt Disney Pictures have until the end of March 2015 to commence production on a sequel before the rights revert back to the Edgar Rice Burroughs estate, at the time of me recording this podcast, that's about three weeks, I doubt anybody at Disney is checking their watches. Why did John Carter fail? It's a question with no easy answer. A more interesting question is, why did Walt Disney Pictures effectively abandon its own movie? John Carter was released with lacklustre advertising, little in the way of marketing, without any of the merchandising that generally accompanies a Disney blockbuster. Why would Disney fail to support a film, costing itself roughly $200 million in the process? 
The first thing to acknowledge is that to a company as large as Walt Disney, $200 million is actually not as significant a sum of money as it might appear. In the context of Walt Disney Pictures, it's an enormous sum, but Walt Disney Pictures is itself a minority part of Walt Disney as a whole. The company continues to get the, gain the vast bulk of its income from licensing and theme parks. Films follow in a very distant third place, accounting for less than 10% of the company's total income. Disney took a hit, certainly, but it was a hit that the company could take. The second thing that must be acknowledged is that when John Carter was first optioned and sent into production in 2007, Walt Disney had a distinct lack of successful properties aimed at young boys. They had the market on girls' interests covered through Disney princesses, Disney fairies, High School Musical and a number of other successful film and television properties. Developing a boy-friendly franchise was proving more difficult. In the 10 years between 2002 and 2012, Walt Disney Pictures took a chance on Treasure Planet, Pirates of the Caribbean, Around the World in 80 Days, National Treasure, Sky High, The Chronicles of Narnia, Underdog, Race to Witch Mountain, Prince of Persia, The Sorcerer's Apprentice and Tron Legacy. Of these 11 films, only three were considered successful enough to warrant sequels, and only one was successful enough for Disney to produce more than one sequel, Pirates of the Caribbean. By the time of John Carter's release in March 2012, the Walt Disney Company was in a very different position. In August 2009, Disney had purchased Marvel Entertainment for $4.2 billion. This purchase gave Disney ownership over a large quantity of popular boys' entertainment characters, including Spider-Man, Iron Man, The Incredible Hulk, and Thor. It was a commercial masterstroke. It allowed Disney to simply buy its way into boys' entertainment, rather than spend more time and money trying to independently develop viable properties. While many of the Marvel properties had their film rights tied up in rival studios, including Spider-Man and the X-Men, Walt Disney Pictures still had access to a raft of proven characters, and would still earn millions of dollars from each of their competitors' films while those film agreements ran on. Disney's other purchase must surely have had an even more profound effect for John Carter. On the 20th of May 2011, Robert Iger attended the launch of Walt Disney's Star Tours 2 theme park ride, alongside Star Wars creator George Lucas. At that event, Lucas confided that he was looking to retire and sell his company, Lucasfilm Limited, and the rights to the Star Wars franchise. After a lengthy period of negotiation, Walt Disney purchased Lucasfilm in October 2012 for $4.05 billion. The purchase of Marvel and Lucasfilm put John Carter in a difficult position. Disney now owned the Marvel superheroes and the Star Wars characters, making upcoming films such as The Avengers and Star Wars Episode VII far more lucrative for the company. Disney didn't own the novel A Princess of Mars, which was even in public domain in the USA, and they didn't have a trademark on Burroughs' Barsoom characters. Every dollar spent on developing the Avengers or Star Wars would be a dollar invested in Disney's future. Every dollar spent on developing John Carter was arguably a dollar invested in the estate of Edgar Rice Burroughs. Is it possible that, when weighing up the costs and benefits of each of their franchises, Walt Disney Pictures simply figured John Carter was not worth supporting? A massive marketing drive was placed behind the Avengers, pushing that film's box office well beyond a billion dollars and stimulating interest in an entirely new wave of Marvel spin-offs and sequels. John Carter didn't have that ability, and it seems possible, no matter how strange, that Disney simply looked to its long-term future and abandoned one of its costliest productions. Whatever their reasoning, Walt Disney Pictures have left behind a wonderfully produced, beautifully designed, and very enjoyable adventure film. Once the dust has long settled on the film, its budget, and its failure at the box office, I feel fairly certain that it's going to come to be remembered as one of many long, underestimated, and fascinating fantasy Disney pictures. It joins the like of Tron, Dragon Slayer, and Return to Oz, inventive, fascinating pictures that, all while marked by faults and audience-defying quirks, still manage to capture our attentions and make all new fans with every passing decade. 
You've been listening to what I'm pretty sure is the longest podcast I've ever personally recorded. Uh, I didn't intend to write 13,000 words on John Carter, but I really like the film. I found the story of its making in the background and the near century of development too interesting just to leave alone. Uh, This was an essay written for Fiction Machine. That's a website written by me, Grant Watson. It explores the making of films and has a look at how good movies are built by the talented artists who make them. So you can find the actual essays at www.fictionmachine.com and a new essay is uploaded at least once a month. This has been the podcast version of the same site, so it provides the exact same information just in an audio format so that you can listen to it without having to waste your valuable eye energy on your computer, your tablet, mobile telephone screen. You can listen to it on public transport, having a walk at the gym. I'm not fussy. Fiction Machine is funded by the generous donations of Fiction Mechanics via Patreon, so more information on how you can help fund my writing and presentation on Fiction Machine, just follow the link at the top of the Fiction Machine website. 